Hello and welcome to episode 343 of The Creighton Crowbar. It is the 8th of October, 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me this evening are Graham Smith. Hello. And Tom Senior. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Uh, news this week, <clears throat> pretty much, is the uh, release into early access of uh, Baldur's Gate 3, which also already appears to be pretty pretty popular with the nerds. I don't know why. I, I mean, I, I want this. I don't know why I decided to do that. <laughs> just, yeah, nerds. Uh, nerd. I don't know. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just kind of pointlessly... I was going to say it's not even punching down from where I am. Sometimes you just kind of punch, 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 punch yourself. Yeah, <laughs> punch yourself square in the nose. Um, uh, yeah, so Larian's um, Baldur's Gate 3, which we should probably disclaimer briefly with the fact that um, our friend and uh, former colleague Adam worked on it, Adam Smith. Um, or is working on it because it's not done yet, um, so, is out now. I was wondering, like, uh, the big question I have is whether you guys are going to play it in early mm. access or wait until it's done. This is a, a dilemma I've been having with this. And I, I think I've, I'm in the camp of just waiting until it's finished to actually get into it as an RPG. I think I too am in that camp. I think if, if it had come out a different time, I don't think that's just on principle. I think it's also that this has been quite a dense time for games I really want. Mm. And I'm I'm trying to balance that as it is, and I almost can't take a high investment RPG right now. And it's almost comforting to know that it's not finished, so that I have a good reason not to play it right now. <laughs> it's like the be- the best time to play Original Sin Two. Their last game was like two years after it first came out because they did early yeah. access with that. But right. then after release, they then did a definitive edition, which added a bunch more quality of life changes and that sort of stuff. Um, they fixed the ending as well, like changed a lot of, yeah, it was a pretty significant overhaul. So that's a kind of, you're right, that's a kind of sign of things to come for Baldur's Gate 3. How it, what, I don't know anything, anything about what state it's in at the moment, but uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good job. Yeah, so I think so. Is that we're all agreed that we're not going to play this? <laughs> Good podcasting, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Um, I mean, I have heard really great things. Like, I, I I love the idea of what they've done, and I'm very pleased that that um, that Larry and were the ones to kind of get to do that. I think, and I am curious about how exactly that came to be. Mm. But it's nice to see. I think because D and D has entered the kind of public consciousness so much more than it was when those games were the original games were a thing mostly thanks to like live streams and and you know live play tabletop stuff that it's nice to see a game come out that embraces the kind of tabletop weirdness of that setting rather than what has traditionally been done with the forgotten realms which is a lot more kind of po-faced traditional fantasy um yeah so i'm that, really excited about that larian is such a good fit for that series i think in a, if they're going to make a modern version of Baldur's gate which is Obviously, one of the most staid uh, digital interpretations of the D and D rule set. Uh, I have confidence that they can do something uh, like much more fun with it than right. uh, you know being another typical isometric RPG. Yeah, and I think um, that sort of simulationist thing they approach, they 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 take the attitude they take when approaching these games is one of the reasons that I might end up ducking in. Like, I think my resolve to not play it in early access may not last till it comes out. It, it might end as soon as I want to play it, <laughs> <laughs> which could be tomorrow, really, by the time this podcast comes out. 
but it's I, I think the thing that maybe preserves that approach for me is viable is that um while the story and, and the kind of linear stuff is super important the fact that it's more of a sandbox uh as more of a simulation using D's rules makes that appealing to me it's a game i can imagine wanting to just replay and experiment with things and stuff like that rather than it being a linear experience i want to save until it's perfect i think i might just um email adam smith every monday at 9 a.m and ask him repeatedly should i play this yet should i play this yet should i play this yet yeah. until he blocks me and and that 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 will that'll be when you know that's right <laughs> that will be the time that will be the time to install it good well congratulations to them and and also the other thing is it appears to have gone down extremely well so far yeah like, for sure the early signs is that it's done extremely well so that's um a positive sign for this sort of thing uh, i'm trying to think there's any other news it's the steam autumn games festival thing that i don't really know very much about it's just the lots of demos festival right it's not the sale or am i wrong about that i think it's both at the same time i think everything on steam is a sale now um yeah <laughs> but but also demos are just a thing now remember demos hmm. yeah so now now they're sometimes called prologues. If you go to Steam and type in the word prologue into the search bar, you will just find hundreds of demos that are called mm. prologue. Um, but there are like there are like a thousand demos or something like that for the the autumn festival. Um, a lot of them are demos that were released during previous time limited events like the Steam Summer Festival or mm. PAX EGX or Gamescom and that sort of stuff. But a lot of them are new as well. Um, yeah, I was yeah, really interested in interesting. Uh, fights in tight spaces. Is uh, one of the sort of tactical games that is has a, a new demo out as part of this effort. So uh, yeah, it's definitely worth digging into the archives of this stuff to to get those good sweet mm. demos. But yeah, the demos are prologues. Prologue? What is that? That's strange. I've I've, yeah, uh, I've it... sorry, go on. No, go on, Graham. I was going to say, I've installed just one demo so far, which is called Watch Me Livestream My Mental Breakdown, which is a, a, ta- a tactical card game about being a live streamer where your opponent is your audience, which sounds mm, great. That's cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that's clever. Oh, there's some such bad Warhammer games in this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just You're surfing it. Yeah. No, I'm going to have a good week. <laughs> <laughs> Graham. Hmm. Graham, what have you been playing? Hello. I've been playing Genshin Impact. Mm. Did I time that for exactly when you were taking a big drink? Yes. Was that was that apparent <laughs> from my... Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that, was, that was my Pepsi Max. Mm. Nice. Huge spit take. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that, that is the response to playing Genshin Impact, which is um, a free-to-play mobile gacha game uh which is not something i expected to be playing uh but it turns out it's also a free-to-play breath of the wild on pc Mm, um, which is a strange combination this is the game Mm. you might have come across it last year because sony it's also on ps4 and sony showed a trailer for it at one of their conferences and there was a video that went viral afterwards of an outraged Nintendo fan destroying their PlayStation 4 in protest. <laughs> because in protest the, at what? That this game was too similar to Breath of the Wild and Sony were ripping off Nintendo's magnum opus. Uh, they are, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, to some extent. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's this is a, an open world anime RPG. <laughs> I'm not even going to say JRPG. It's an anime RPG uh, in which you have a glider and you can climb any vertical surface. So not yeah, it's it's pretty damn Breath of the Wild. It gets worse as well when you see like the enemy designs and the enemies live in like little little camps made out of wooden fort like mm -hmm. walls and huts and that sort of thing. Um, so it's pretty damn Breath of the Wild, and I understand people being kind of like skeptical of it and critical of it for that reason. Uh, I don't want to be though. I just want to celebrate it because Breath of the Wild was great, and I want people to learn the lessons of Breath of the Wild's right. open yeah. worlds. Yeah. And it's not like there are that many games in which you can climb any surface, not with that kind of uh, stamina bar consideration. Obviously, you can do it in Assassin's Creed, but it doesn't feel the same way as it does in Breath of the Wild and now Genshin Impact. And yeah, if like if if game developers aren't willing to copy from other game developers then well it would have been the only ones to make a first person shooter they would have done doom and no one would have followed in its footsteps so like i have no problem with people making breath of the wild style games and just claiming that that's a genre now but more importantly i think they do it really well like i don't think they just copied the surface elements of you can claim things and there's a little hang glider i think they've actually understood what made that game's open world interesting in mm. terms of it's got a map which doesn't have very many icons on it which um you can actually switch to a mode where it's got no icons on it whatsoever and the the geography of that open world is designed in such a way that it's constantly presenting you with interesting looking things on the horizon that it's then fun to traverse your way towards and to discover what that thing is and reward you with some story, some quests, some XP, or just a beautiful vista. And it's an extremely beautiful game. Um, and like the best moment I've had in it so far was stumbling across a duck pond at night and just huh. like being struck by how how beautiful it was and the, the, what a lovely atmosphere it has just like you can sit down at certain certain like benches and stuff like that within the world and it's got a photo mode and i've just spent a bunch of time like fussing around with that basically and had a great time um but the actual like mechanics beyond that are really good as well and it does have a bunch of differences from breath of the wild most notably is the combat so you're not controlling a single protagonist. Um, you right. control one person at a time out of a party of four, and you can oh, hog cool. swap between those four characters at any moment. Um, and you can, I think there's like 23 characters altogether you can unlock via the gacha mechanics, which I'll get onto, to join your party. And each of those characters has an elemental ability. So you start off with a character who is. Um, has wind powers and so she's got a sword she can hit things with her sword she can also create tornadoes to blow enemies away uh, uh and a couple of other magic abilities that set on cooldowns you then get a character called amber she has a bow and arrow which which you can charge up to fire fire arrows um you then get an ice guy <laughs> and then uh <laughs> 
an electro woman, and then lava uh, man, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, and dude. so on and so on. And then you have these enemies who have particular immunities or vulnerabilities to those to those abilities. And so, like the kind of, I can't remember what the the little goblin characters, but they're basically the same as the the moblins from Breath of the Wild. But some of them will be carrying a wooden shield, and so you can switch to amber and fire a fire arrow at the shield the shield catches fire and gets destroyed you can then switch to one of your melee characters by just pressing a button on the d-pad to do it instantly in the midst of combat and start bashing them without them being able to defend themselves oh, that sounds great and, and there are then these there's lots of slimes like um you know dragon quest style slimes where they you know they're they're a water slime and so you can they're particularly susceptible to fire which causes them to start to evaporate um but immune to some other abilities and technically you sort of feel like water should be immune to fire because you can't <laughs> you can't set water on fire <laughs> <laughs> but never mind yeah I, was, I thought you were about to say like this is the ice guy's time to shine but nope <laughs> It's Firewoman again. <laughs> like, she'll, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that was an incorrect example, but you get the idea. I <laughs> certainly, do. Yeah. certainly, the water guys no. are more susceptible to the electro attacks because you can use your, your ice guy who can make characters wet uh, <laughs> and then switch from, you know, having made them wet to your electro lady who's mm-hmm. called Lisa, which is weird because that's my partner's name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then start hitting them with electric boats, which do more damage because you've made them wet previously. Which is yep. like you know, it's a really that's a really simple common combat thing. Uh, like you know, that's Bioshock basically getting a big guy yep. in a puddle and then hitting them with a an electric wrench <laughs> or whatever. But guys, I I love video games. <laughs> May they never change. <laughs> Can you imagine if any at any point real fighting ever worked like that? Like, <laughs> you have to like throw a glass of water at someone and then go and actually and get find... a plug socket or something. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, it sounds great though, Graham. Um, sorry, I completely interrupted you there, but no, no, uh, no, it, it is great. What, what were you going to say? I was going to actually ask you to what extent it's an, an MMO and like whether you know to what extent you can actually play with other people, how that manifests. So within the world, because it's because it's Breath of the Wild, within the world there are dungeons, um, and you can go in there and fight enemies and do different quests within those dungeons, and you can do those dungeons cooperatively with other players. Um, I haven't done any of that stuff yet, and as far as I can tell, like it's it's sort of like that's the kind of end game stuff like you can do it earlier on in the game but it's it's primarily it seems to be designed as a single player rpg that then you can because that's the other thing of it being kind of like having these underpinning jrpg mechanics where you've got a party everything has a stat attached to it um and then you can level up every one of those stats and it's in this where you can start to see where some of the free-to-play hooks and some of the kind of like games as service stuff start to come in, where it looks like already my characters have a health bar which goes up into the tens of thousands, um, and I've only nice. played the game for like ten hours. It seems like those that those health bars and the amount of damage you're going to be putting out is going to go up to you know, tens or hundreds of thousands, and then you're going to be going into dungeons to fight against enemies that are similarly leveled and wanting to partner with friends who have maybe complementary characters to bring with them to you and that sort of stuff. Um, That's sort of compelling to me, but 
not nearly as much as the single player it's a breath of the wild stuff and like i keep referring to these characters and i mentioned there's 23 of them um you get four within the first i don't know like four or five hours of the game and i like that's as many as you can have at a party they each have a different elemental ability and in the 10 to 12 hours i've played so far i haven't seen any need to have any kind of other character in order to like it's not giving me difficulty walls or big uh, grindy gaps that i need to go through um that would feel like it was trying to compel me to pay money because the gacha mechanics if people aren't familiar gacha is like um basically gambling gambling in in order to unlock characters uh and like in this i think it's you get some like free rolls to try and get some characters early on um and then you're paying for like premium currency to to, to essentially gamble for like a 0.6 percent chance of getting a character you want um which sounds like garbage but again i've played it for 10 to 12 hours at this point And it's not just that I don't feel pressured into doing those things by the game's mechanics. The game hasn't mentioned at any point that those systems exist. And I don't know how to do them. (laughs) Like the game hasn't (laughs) taught me how to access the gacha stuff and get characters and things. And like to the point where I know that I have as a new player some free roles that might get me another character, but I don't know where to go to use them. (laughs) Uh, And like that's pretty generous as far as free-to-play games go and like i've played for 10 to 12 hours at this point and it was completely free if i never had another second of fun with this game from this point onwards i would still be extremely satisfied because i've just had a lovely experience with it up to this point and it, it looks for all the world like i'll be able to play it for probably at least another 10 more um, based on like the number of quests that I've already discovered that are accessible to me at my current level and that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's like, when we cover a lot of free games on RPS, um, we make a lot of like articles about it and videos about it. And we're always trying to recommend people go download, you know, <laughs> really arty indie games, you know, murder dog for and that sort of stuff <laughs> uh, and it's and most of the time that's not what people are looking for what people are looking for is the secret free triple a game that i that they didn't know existed you know they're looking for the call of duty that they didn't know was out there right. but also it's free um mm. you know and so like something like Fortnite sort of fits the bell because it's like, well, that's as, that's as good and as polished as a paid-for AAA game. Yeah. Um, but the problem with Fortnite is that everybody's already heard of it. Everybody's already got it. Genshin Impact is actually, if it was like that thing that everyone's always looking for, is this is a, a polished AAA game that's free that you haven't yet heard of because mm. I'm having as much fun with it at this point as I was having with Breath of the Wild. That's 10 hours awesome. into breath of the wild so i'm i'm definitely going to get this downloaded uh but i've got to ask why is it called genshin impact <laughs> <laughs> i don't fully know so like it's by a chinese game developer called mihoyo um and it's clearly inspired by japanese games japanese anime uh and it's sort of part of a series it's, I think it's the fourth game in a series where the previous <laughs> game was called honkai impact um 
Awesome. And so I guess like impact is the brand, uh, but like there's nothing like as far I don't think the region of the world that you're in in the game is called Genshin or anything like that. And I I'm not aware of what links, if any, it has to the previous game in the series or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know <laughs> is the answer to the question. <laughs> Yeah, that's mostly a question designed to just say Genshin Impact again, <laughs> uh, so that everyone knows what we're talking about and can download it. It sounds looking great. That sounds awesome. What have you guys been playing? Well then, well <laughs> then. So last week, um, you will recall uh, if you heard listen to the podcast last week that we, Tom and I both were very very excited to do it at that time the imminent release of Star Wars Squadrons, and. Um, I am, I will say, and this is to lead with, with good news, I kind of am now impatient to get through the podcast so I can play Star Wars Squadrons, which is exactly where I was this time a week ago. Yeah. But it's good that I'm still there. So I've played about 30 hours of this now in a week, um, which is a good sign. And I, uh, uh, I I love it very much. And I've got some, uh, you know, some critiques and concerns, but overall, I'm really, really happy with it. Tom, what is what is your take on the star wars space game this, this is exactly the game i wanted at exactly the right moment <laughs> which is yeah. uh separate from the actual qualities of the game it's, it's a very well-made game uh it's very great uh, it's a really fun space dogfighting game which has great aesthetic art direction uh, aesthetic art, art. anyway um and yeah so uh, i've gone through some stuff in the last few days and not to get to that's uh, like describe it in, in any detail the relief of coming back to my PS4 and being able to pilot an X-Wing has been incredible. It's been such a relief and really, really fun to just pop TIE Fighters like bubble wrap with your uh, beautiful laser cannons. The, the, I think my main... I've only played about 10 hours at the moment, but uh, my only criticism so far is there isn't a button you can press to uh, set X-Wing foils to attack precision, which to me is just... Yeah. Uh, it, should, it should be in there. You've got to put it so in there. I, so I want to caveat... Oh, everything I've got to say about the game it, by saying that I do know some of the developers um, and um, uh, particularly the people who wrote it. And um, I've, you know, played online with them because they're friends and they've been friends for, for years since my Dota days. And um, this is my main complaint as well. Like there are some <laughs> tech issues that we could talk about. There are sure. some other things. My chief complaint is that they there isn't a button that you can press to open and close the S-foils on the X-Wing or the yep. U-Wing, which also has them. Mm. Um, like I... Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I guess we could spin this off into talking about it as a game because, so, I think I think it is the and I, this is not small praise. I think it is the most successful interpretation of Star Wars kind of cinematic space dogfighting into a video game that there is, mm. um, or that there has been. And the reason I say that is because, um, and and I actually, and I say that with like appropriate reverence for X Wing and Tie Fighter and X Wing Alliance and X Wing versus Tie Fighter, uh, which all I think did an amazing job. But I think um, they did an amazing job within the context of of the time. I think those games hold up um, to a degree, but I think in some cases they're a bit um, they they're they're sort of. Uh, Re- revisited now i think they've lost some of the 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 drama and spectacle that they had in the time which is obviously inevitable with the passage of time and improving technology but also because i think they um they relied given what they were on on your imaginative investment what you were bringing to them and they were married to a set of systems that are pretty deep and pretty complicated but unevenly matched to the fantasy of being a star wars pilot specifically 
because being a Star Wars pilot is not the same as being any other kind of space dog fighter. There are obviously similar things like Wing Commander, but it's not elite, right? You don't want zero G physics really in Star Wars because mm. Star Wars spaceships are planes. They're yep. planes <laughs> um, and, and all of this stuff. And I think the thing that makes Squadron so successful is they have obviously looked really, really critically at the last at Star Wars as a whole, at the movies, at what's been done on the TV shows and other games and things, and made like a series of decisions about how to build a interesting, internally balanced um, dogfighting combat game um, that makes sense of things that are extremely Star Warsy, like angling shields front and back, rebalancing power levels, that kind of thing, um, but implements every one of them just enough. Um, to add meaningful depth to the flight model and to provide you with constantly interesting things to do. Um, but always with a view, I think, to furnishing like a uh, an ultimately pretty um, cinematic feeling game. And that's a really hard balance mm. to strike, I think. Um, like, and I think that coupled with really great presentation and sound and everything else is what makes it all come together. Because I think... You know, I don't want to sound like I imagine some people will think it's kind of childish of me to say like this is better than uh, X Wing Alliance, say because it's almost as sophisticated and it looks nicer. But honestly, for me at least, what I always wanted from those games is to be immersed in that particular fantasy, knowing that if I wanted a serious flight sim, there are other places I can go. I think they also happen to be some of the best space flight games ever made. But in this case, it's very much like this completes that circuit, and when it all comes together and it all works, it's it's just one of the best Star Wars experiences I've ever had, I think. And I say that as someone who basically lives in that universe imaginatively half the time. I think they've, they've struck such a sweet spot with it being a very accessible sim and one that translates very well onto a control pad and onto, yeah. uh, you know, or, you know, flight sticks and stuff like that. And the kind of busy work, not busy work, but, you know, the the tactics of changing your power ratios to put power into shields or into your lasers, etc. The fact you could just do that on the d-pad with a little tap and the fact that you know it says to you if you want to actually become more mobile and turn faster just go to exactly half speed and there's that that's a, a game in and of itself like you're just uh just trying to get yeah. to, to the sweet spot for the speed that you, for what you need to actually do in the game and uh it's it, they could have made an arcade game that was incredibly simple but they've done more than that they've uh they've got the extra mile and the ships feel so different and so interesting and they've uh, i think they've uh excelled i think it's awesome yeah there's, there's there's so many really interesting decisions i think you've indicated one of them like you know one of the classic space dog fighting game issues is the kind of endlessly circling each other problem mm. um and one of the ways that they've finished that or the standing still and being a turret issue and one of the ways that they fix that as you say is to make your sweet spot your throttle sweet spot for maneuverability the middle of the throttle rather than the, the top or the bottom mm. so you're not most maneuverable when you're going fast and you're not most maneuverable when you're slowing down you're most maneuverable when you're going at an average speed and that naturally keeps things moving and then there's loads of cool stuff like the power balancing system uh, it does let you um change the setting so that you can do granular power shunting if you want or you can have it swing between extremes and then balanced basically and both are viable and that's tied to a really interesting thing which is being in full being fully charged in any either shields um engines or weapons gives you a slowly overcharges that system which provides a buff that does different things for different systems mm. but that buff will slowly decay when you when you withdraw power from that system but won't won't vanish completely and that again is super clever because it means that 
when you're flying to a fight, you're prepping your systems for the thing you're about to do. And there are reasons to be moving uh, in and out of those kind of extremes rather than like doing the thing that I think anyone who's learning X-Wing Alliance would do, which is like, I'm just going to keep them balanced because I don't trust myself to like live in one of these, you know, with ex- full engines or full shields or something like that. Um, and I just think it's it's super clever. So you'll find yourself like, so for example, uh, if you have full engines, you'll charge a boost bar. So now that I'm, when I'm flying into a battle, I'll, I'll charge engines until i'm on the way i start to boost and then shift everything to shields to quickly charge an overshield if i'm on a shielded ship and then switch back to engines to load boost to give to top up the boost bar and then when you're in the thick of it as soon as you've got a firing solution the skill comes from redirecting all your power to the weapons at just the right time to get what the instant damage bonus you oh, get for doing yeah. that that's a good and one. then that's that's and then that that's what feels really good that's the kind of i've got and then pulling off that dance of inputs is is the game and obviously everything else you pile on top of that from ship types visibility tactics game state all the rest of it all of that is is what modifies your ability to execute this this really satisfying core kind of vehicular combat loop i think the the fact yeah sorry sorry, uh, yeah the the single player is a really good tutorial basically like it, it it sort of walks you through all of these options and all of these things that you can do with your ship and very early on you have to uh, break a blockade uh, made of st- star destroyers pretty threatening and they teach you to um put to go to maximum speed just to outrun the turrets basically and that's basically saying okay you're up against a certain capital ship and it's basically shields or speed and that's what you need to do and yeah uh, that carries through to the rest of the game modes and uh yeah it's really elegant bit of t- tutorial work there yeah it's interesting because that tutorial work continues all the way through the campaign. And I think one thing that's kind of nice about it is it's quite a nice balance. The campaign took me about eight hours to finish. And then I'm midway through a second playthrough on a higher difficulty setting now. Um, and I thought what thing they did quite well is it does, it is, it, it does. <laughs> Sorry, that's my girlfriend's seat. <laughs> the passing TIE fighter explodes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that was incredible. Um, uh, uh, she says um, sorry. No, it's, it's great. Um, the so the the I think the thing because normally with because it is I think a multiplayer first game to some extent, but um, it I was kind of expecting a you know a single player story as multiplayer games often have set that was exclusively set within multiplayer maps and that focused primarily on. You know, effectively like a series of bot matches, basically, to get you up to speed with the story hanging off it. And that's kind of true in some cases. Obviously, some environments do repeat. But actually, it's also not because there's, like, lots of new environments. And there are particularly a whole bunch of set pieces in multiplayer that, like, I was... Have you played the single, finished single player, Tom? I'm about halfway through it, I think. But okay. I, I've certainly enjoyed the sort of uh, space-borne superstructures that you get to fly through as part of that. Yeah, they, they do. They give you some real Star Wars moments that you don't get in multiplayer in terms of, like flying out of an exploding thing that kind oh, yeah. of stuff and yeah. that's that's really nice to have alongside this kind of campaign which is otherwise teaching you stuff so that when you do fight a capital ship in that campaign uh the same way you know the mechanics for taking it apart and dealing with its subsystems and exposing weak points and blowing them up is the same as the ones you would then later kind of engage with in multiplayer um so yeah so like i'm really impressed with it and i'm impressed with it in the way that i have been impressed with um, things like Mech Warrior games. That's the bracket I would put it in. Hmm. It is a like an accomplished vehicle combat 
multiplayer game first, really, and like, and it happens also to be a Star Wars game. And then the kind of icing on the cake for me is it takes advantage of the fact that it's a Star Wars game to such a kind of huge degree, both in terms of it being obviously a setting that people love, but also in terms of like the ships feeling meaningfully different between the factions, kind of based on their designs, like designs that weren't designed for game balance, but like, um, you know, the they have done a really good job of creating Imperial ships that feel like Imperial ships and Rebel ships that feel like Rebel ships. Um, while... So I'm trying to get what I'm getting at here. It's really hard <clears throat> to kind of balance those things because they were designed for a particular cinematic effect, right? So tie cockpits don't make a ton of sense, right? These like <laughs> right. little eyeballs facing forward, but they've made that kind of work. Like Imperial ships are pretty maneuverable, but you have this limited visibility, um, at least in terms of your kind of um, surround, your your periphery. Um, but what you do have is maneuverability and... Uh, and the ability to kind of, uh, because you don't have shields, the ability to quickly shunt power between engines and, and guns. In the, in a rebel ship, you have other systems to deal with. You're also trying to manage your shields, which are both an advantage, but also an extra thing to deal with. But you have these cockpits that are a lot more open in terms of being able to see to your left and right and above you. But also, crucially, you can very rarely see below you, which TIE pilots can, because you're, the nose of your ship is in the way. And that stuff for me is so cool because... That's what makes it feel, and this is going to sound stupid, real. Because it, ma- it makes you start thinking about the vehicles, both in terms of how they've been balanced as game pieces, but also as like physical machines that you're considering the strengths and the, the pros and cons of each one based on some things that are pretty tangible about how they're built. And um, the thing I would say is I've played all, I, all of, almost all of my 28 hours with the game have been in VR. Um, huh. which has broken my mind. Uh, I've had a lot of really weird dreams this week. <laughs> um, but, um, and I, I would say, so the, the caveat I would put on this is that it has had some real technical wobbles. Um, there's some issues with hotel sticks. They were fixed today, I think in a patch. And it took me, I, my first half an hour with it was a little bit cagey. And I realized that I needed to do two things. I needed to step away and spend half an hour tinkering with graphic settings, updating drivers, um, looking through, it's got really deep options menus, but just going through those settings and configuring everything and getting the VR working properly. And also accepting that it was going to take me a bit of time to just get used to its flight model. I play with an Xbox pad and VR and just to learn the controls and learn to get fluent with them takes some time. It doesn't let you in straight away. And when all that came together, I still have had some issues with um, spotty um, performance, particularly in the bigger modes. But I've been playing a lot of Dogfight, which is the five on five deathmatch kind of mode, which is great. Um, and I've been playing a lot of that in VR at, with friends who are also playing in VR. And it's genuinely just the, it's just exactly what I wanted it to be. Cause you find yourself, I find myself like talking to my friends about like, you know, they're, they're flying in, they'll say like, okay, they've got an interceptor coming down this angle. And I'm naturally turning my head to look out the windows of my A-wing cockpit to find them. And then, like, I'm literally picking up my visual scanning, which is something that I've wanted to say to someone else uh, at, since watching A New Hope. Like, it's it's just that feeling of being in that machine. And the other side of it is those ships feel massive in VR. Hmm. Like, they are so, you're so surrounded by them and all the instrumentation, because half of the, most of the UI is in the ship's own instruments rather than in the, in the, in the broader game there's this incredible sense of of like using those even playing with an xbox pad rather than the full like hotel setup or anything the feeling of like using those 
learning to use those vehicles effectively to pull things off in them is just amazing. And like yesterday I was playing an, on a deathmatch game and uh, I basically found myself being chased by the other team for, in an X. I was in an X-Wing and I was being chased for about two and a half minutes, which feels like a long time, like without getting killed, just getting hunted and like weaving around the space station and ducking down into trenchways. And like there's a, the, the, it's one kind of concession to gravity zero g is the boost mechanic and the drift mechanic which allows you to boost and then basically do a cool handbrake turn <laughs> but it's the thing that poe does in the last start of the last jedi where you can kind of like skid and it feels amazing and it feels fucking incredible in vr when you're sort of weaving thing around corners and things and and the rest of it it's really 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 good and um i uh, just want to keep playing it, and like it's it's a kind of single player game where like I don't think it's it's like revolutionary single player in any way, but it's got a solid story and a likable cast and cool moments where particularly in VR you can just stand in a room and a Star Wars character will talk at you <laughs> directly to your face, and in VR that's really weird because you can you can step forward and give Wedge Antilles a little kiss, yeah. <laughs> just sort of stroke um, their face, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, moi. um, and all the rest of it. Um, so, but uh, so, sorry, on uh, yeah. So, Chris, um, what is your favourite ship, and why isn't it the A wing? So, I. Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I know. Um, so this is the thing. So it's got oh, the other thing. So it's got a loadout system, which allows you to customize the ships. And in single player, it quickly kind of gives you all of these. In multiplayer, you have to unlock stuff, but it, it's very generous with those unlocks. You can quickly build almost anything you want, particularly if you know what you're building. Um, I have built a ton of ships, and it's very hard to pick a favorite. Um, in terms of being there, I love being inside the U-Wing, the transport ship, because in VR, it's massive on the inside, and you can turn around and just look inside the entire crew bay uh, where people would sit. Sometimes I have, when I've been stressed this week, I've just loaded the game up in VR and sat because you can just climb into the ship when it's just in the hangar and just sit in the hangar in the cockpit of a ship. And like, this is where I live now. I'll take my meetings in here, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, I do love the A-Wing. The A-Wing has amazing cockpit visibility and it's very nippy and it's very little. Um, rapid fire lasers. It does have good rapid fire lasers, and also, so there's a. I played a lot of the X Wing tabletop game for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, it's possible to they they were inspired by quite a lot of X Wing tabletop upgrades in in designing the the loadout system for this, and it's possible to recreate some things that work in this as well, which mm-hmm. is rad, and that includes uh, basically putting dumb fire rockets on an A wing, so rather than the homing missiles and things, they just fire straight forward, and that was really good in the early days of multiplayer because. When players were still learning the game, they would often fly directly at you. There's a lot of jousting, which is what that's called when you just LOL. lock up, <laughs> yeah, lock on the other person and just fly directly at them, and um, and then chase people in a straight line. And so my favorite trick early on was to let someone chase me in a straight line in an A wing, put all the power into the engines, boost, do a 180, flip the ship around with the drift and then stop with them flying directly towards you and just fire dumb fire missiles in a straight line and so that they hit a cloud of missiles coming the other way. That feels fucking rad. Hmm. That feels rad as hell. I tried an extremely dumb build the other day where I put a tractor beam on a U-wing um, <laughs> and and then equipped the thing that allows you to make little turrets and just create a little nest of turrets and then people would fly past and I would stop them and then like sort of guide them into the hell zone. 
that's that's the fun police arriving and stopping that. Um, I like the normal Tie Fighter a lot actually, and the Tie Bomber mm. and the Y Wing and the X. No, it's it's like <laughs> I, I've really like I've really enjoyed making different builds for each of the ships for different purposes as well. That's there's so much to that that is really rewarding when you start to dig into it. What's your favorite, Tom? Uh, I, do, I do love the A-Wing just because of the expansive canopy and the ability to see a lot of space. Um, and I like space. I like looking at it. And also I like seeing where the TIE fighters are uh, yeah. that are trying to come and kill me. And uh, yeah, uh, the kind of, is it that sort of the power balance of putting your uh, energy into lasers, but only having about five to 10 seconds of actual burst fire before they run out of gas actually not really forces you to it's like a shotgun basically you have to get quite close uh, but yeah. once you actually get to the right position you just delete stuff and that's super super that feels amazing <laughs> it feels so good yeah so that's my choice at the moment but i've not actually piloted the u-wing yet uh, and they're super cool ships they are cool and like i think the the thing that's really neat about it, so i think what's interesting is all of that stuff kind of becomes super relevant in in multiplayer specifically uh, it's in single player when you wear particular medals and things, but in multiplayer. And multiplayer is divided into two modes. One is just um, first to 30 kills deathmatch, but that is more complicated than it sounds because there's a lot of different ship builds and you have to pay attention to what your opponent's running and be willing to switch ships and, and try things. Mm. Um, so, for example, playing, we were getting absolutely owned by a squadron of all tight interceptors that were flying together pretty consistently in a cloud and just mobbing people. They're super nimble. That's the Imperial equivalent of an A-Wing. Right. And um, we ended up fixing it, and I came back out in, in a, a build that I didn't actually, don't normally use for this purpose, but it's a Y-Wing with these things called Goliath missiles, which are missiles that home very aggressively. And then when they explode, even if they are ultimately caught by countermeasures or something, they explode with a big explosion, which has a big AOE effect. And then um, this attachment that puts a kind of auto-targeting ion turret on the top of the ship, uh, which can deactivate enemy ships. And my, what I, all I was doing to help my friends out, my team out, was flying through, flying into this squadron of TIE interceptors, sending the missile out so they'd have to deal with it, and then flying through at the ion turret just to force them to scatter. And my job for that game wasn't to get tons of kills, even if it's just deathmatch. It was to force the enemy formation to break, fly away so I don't die, and then call out if anyone's chasing me so they can be dealt with and then come back and do it again. And that kind of strategy is a lot deeper than I've gotten from like a game like this in a long time. Um, and then the other mode, which is really it's kind of showcase mode and it's ranked mode, is called Fleet Battle, which is um, somewhere between a Mech Warrior game in terms of being like a detailed vehicle combat game and a MOBA in that um, it is capital ships each side has either a star destroyer or a mon calamari cruiser and in addition to that you have two uh which are is effectively your ancient if this was dota and then you have two um flagships like two um cruisers that um kind of sit sort of beside each other and and as, as the map goes on the two sides will get closer together but broadly speaking the the the, the the, there's the line between each faction's opposed kind of cruisers mark demarcate lanes and it depends a little bit on the map how rigidly drawn that is and then you have you know essentially waves of minions squadrons of npc controlled x-wings and tie fighters and occasionally um corvettes or imperial raiders so smaller capital ships that will fly towards the enemy team and try and break through 
And the way it works is it's a tug of war where um, killing enemy players and killing their ships earns your team morale, but it's like a tug of war bar at the top of the screen. If one team manages to push the morale bar all the way to the far end, they become the attackers and get to make a run on first the enemy cruisers and then the enemy capital ship. And that's basically all there is to it, but that supports a whole bunch of stuff. And at any time you can fly back into the hangar on your capital ship and come back out in a different ship. And it just has so many really cool moments from like knowing, trusting that your friends have got the dogfight bit sorted. So flying back and changing into a bomber or all of you changing into bombers and suddenly re-emerging as a bombing squadron. That's awesome. Feels fucking great. Um, but I think that would be my segue. So how much multiplayer have you played now, Tom? Or has it all been single player? It's all been single player for me. I'm, uh, I'm quite often quite nervous about multiplayer stuff, but uh, I'm definitely going to get into it once I know how the ship's working how all the controls work and that kind of stuff. The other really good thing about it is it has really robust, um, like play against AI options. Um, and in mm. fact, it, it, you're not even allowed to play fleet battles against people until you're level five, I think. And right. so it tells you like, play this against AI, like co-op online with other people, but play it against bots for like those, a couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think the AI in even the single player in terms of you, you're flying as a squad, a squadron, of course, uh, uh, but they do kind of, when you eye on a, a TIE fighter, one of the others will swoop, swoop past and finish them off. Yeah. And that's a great feeling. Like just uh, the fact that AI does that. But it's also teaching you how you should probably play in multiplayer. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I'm already getting a sort of semi-multiplayer experience from the single player aspect of it, for sure. They, they made a really interesting decision in the single player, which is your AI teammates aren't there to set you up for success. They actually will win the battle for you. Mm. Like not on their own, but like, if you just about help, they will do a lot of the work, yeah, which is right. kind of interesting. It feels very different. And that actually brings me to one of the things I was going to talk about in terms of concerns. So like the overriding, so this, there are some tech issues. There are some definitely some rough edges. Occasionally it just won't load ships um, into <laughs> the game oh. until I've failed to load a multiplayer game once. And then it will go like, I couldn't load this. Should I try again? And then the second time it will remember what an X-Wing looks like. So that stuff ain't great. I, I, but it's not been such sufficiently distracting to ruin the game for me. Uh, the other side of it, which I think is kind of interesting, is I think it's a bit of an acquired taste because it's so like this is what there's going to be the, maybe the broader thing to talk about. It's such a weird game for EA to have made. It's so out of character for any big publisher, but specifically them. And one of the reasons for that, there are many reasons for that, but one of them is that it's an acquired taste, um, and you're probably bad at it when you start playing. And like so much AAA design is based on the notion that the tutorial is going to make you feel like the biggest badass in the world. And then you will, you know, usually actually by the end of like a typical AAA game, usually by the end of it, it's harder than it was when you started, right? When we, when we, when we were kids and we were playing games like X-Wing Alliance or X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, you were used to the idea that games started out hard and got a bit easier as you got better at them. Uh, and that's not been the case for a really long time. But this game is like that. So you start and you'll probably die a bunch and you'll screw up the tutorial and you won't be able to fly in a straight line and you won't be, you'll be confused by the power systems and you won't get it. And it, it does try, it does teach you, but you have to, you know, you have to learn. And one thing I found is that in multiplayer, the matchmaking does what it can, but occasionally like you can look at the levels of the people in each team, which just reflects how much time they spent really. And whichever levels are higher, are going to win. They're just going to win. Because if you're new, you probably, and this is this is a thing, if you're new, you don't contribute very much because you don't have, don't have the experience yet, really, unless you're a 
natural. And I don't think that's necessarily possible with any game that has a lot of its own kind of custom systems, you know? Maybe you play tons of flight stuff. Is that um is that down to like stat bonuses or is that purely just the experience of just experience, that's what I mean. Like your stat stat bonuses don't attribute anything. What I mean is literally you have to learn how to drive the space car. Mm -hmm. And when you're starting out, you're not as good at it. And that's actually in its favor, right? Like it's meaningfully deep. Yeah, it's it's better than the Battlefront 2 card system that just like makes makes you go faster (laughs) and uh, shoot better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, it's 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 doing this thing where like, but the and I don't think that's a bad thing in terms of a purist sense. But I think what it is is potentially kind of off-putting because it means that you dive into the game and you probably suck at first, and not everyone wants to feel like they're bad at something. And I'm still learning, and I and I love Star Wars, and I would love to be the best space pilot. But I had to kind of make my peace with the fact that like I'm pretty mediocre, and if I work hard, I maybe will become quite good. Maybe, maybe. The other side of it is so that's one thing just takes time to get good at the other side of it is particularly in 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 both multiplayer modes but particularly in fleet battles it's not like a moba in terms of having tons of stuff to memorize it is like a moba in terms of um it's very bad to die um and you have to be aware of the broader state of the map in order to be able to know what to do and that's that's something that's very familiar to mobile players but other kinds of multiplayer players particularly deathmatch or like shooter players aren't used to which is you know, in this game, it's sometimes good to do nothing for a little bit, right? Like if you might have just gotten the opportunity to do a run on a Star Destroyer, it doesn't mean you should. Maybe it means you should wait for your team. Maybe it means you should wait for the AI to catch up, whatever it is. Or if you die at the wrong time, you can really fuck things up for your team because you'll be waiting to respawn and, you know, they'll be stuck with not being able to bring the full power to bear. And what that means is it's super satisfying when everyone works together and it goes brilliantly. But otherwise, new players or people who aren't, you know, like interested in playing that way can actively hinder. Um, And I obviously being me, like I love games that are designed this way because I think they provide tons of scope for meaningful inter, like meaningful cooperation and meaningful moments competitively. The downside is I also understand that they're not the kinds of things that keep a community growing or keep a community around. And I think I'm really interested in what happens with this game because... I was going to ask that. Like, uh, I, yeah. don't, I don't know if they've said anything about how they might expand it. And EA are actually very good at expansions. Well, no, keeping... they have said something today. Uh, huh. they, they've said they won't at all. Uh, oh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, they said they have no plans for any form of post-launch support. That, that's kind of... A shame, <laughs> I think. Right. Well, here's the thing, because this is this bizarre old school thing. Like their their statement was. All, I was funny watching people vent, like twist themselves into knots about this in the comments because it's like that is one of those statements where what they said was like, "Hey, we scoped this game to be exactly what it is. We've released exactly what we intended to release. Yeah, it costs, it costs thirty foot thirty five quid forty dollars. <clears throat> um, it's self contained. You buy it. You have everything that will ever be. It's done." And that is kind of what, I mean, they'll still, you know, patch problems and things, but like they've said they won't do anything else. And like that is part, part of me is like, you know, that's what people have been asking for for now. What feels like a decade. Yeah. You know, why can't we have just games pat where I don't have to buy anything else. I don't have to, I don't have to grind you know, all the rest of it. On the other hand, I'm like fucking on my knees. Like I would be the biggest whale for this game. Please, (laughs) please sell me shit. I will like I'll do anything because I you know like 
because uh, uh, I, I, I would like it to survive. And the, the other side of it is audiences move on. And, you know, speaking of Genshin Impact, gacha mechanics, collecting mechanics, all of that stuff keeps people around. And it keeps people in the system. And as long as there are people in the system, there are people to play with. And my big worry is that it will remain a preserve for the hardcore, both by virtue of the fact that, that there won't be people coming in if it doesn't get lots of attention after release, but also because it is only as inclusive as the least experienced player, because the experience cur- the the skill curve is quite what it is. This is a in this moment revealed me to be an enormous hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> In that, yeah, I'm certainly one of those people who uh, just greatly values the fact that this game is self-contained and that you can actually get as much fun as you want out of it without having to do extra stuff. But at the same time, I'm, I think I've played Destiny for so long that I'm kind of expecting the next season of a thing to arrive. Um, right. And I'm kind of trained for that. And I'm kind of excited about that idea. And yeah, so I'm kind of torn about this. I'm really glad to get your surprise in real time. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw that a couple of hours before recording this. And I, I've definitely been like dealing with it where it's like, that is so honourable, you bastards! Right? Like, why yeah. have you done this? <laughs> like, why have you done me... the right thing, you twats? <laughs> yeah, let me let me pay for a season pass so I can have a B wing. You know, <laughs> like that 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 sort of thing. Like, one thing I hope is, I think it's good enough. I really, genuinely think it's good enough that it could actually. What I fear, I guess, to, what I fear is the Titanfall. Uh, yeah. you know, the tribes, things I love that are doomed because they're too technical, basically. Mm. Um, the, the old theory that, I, like, even the fact that, like, the decision they made that this is a space game, but you're locked in first person because that's how they wanted to balance yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That stuff that puts people off. Um, Like, making something willingly for a niche audience and then not trying to nickel and dime them, like, all of that stuff. My worry is, if that audience drifts away, then game dies, no one to replace them. Um, my hope, my hope is that it's good enough, maybe, maybe just maybe this one in a million shot where it's good enough to create a new audience of people who love space flight games. Right. Nice. And then it grows to the point where it needs, it obviously <clears throat> needs and deserves support. Like I want it to be a surprise hit. That's what I would love it to be, you know, mm. where it like, people are like, no, people are playing this a ton. Like, there's tons of people on the subreddit for it. I really hope that's a good sign. But it feels it feels very fragile, and so I've been playing it every day. I did things I don't normally do, like I left a Steam review for it because I would feel bad not to give it the best chance at success. Um, because it, it it would make me sad if it was just sort of sent out to be what it will be, and then you know, or or to be one of these stories where like it's in it's a surprise success. So in four years we get a sequel. <laughs> you know what I mean, like. I don't know. Is there any indication of, I mean, obviously it's very hard to tell about the sales numbers and stuff like that, but like commercially, whether it's been a success, EA obviously very much cares about that sensibly. I don't know for sure. So it's got about 10,000 reviews on Steam, mostly positive. So that's pretty pretty very respectable. And I think there's tens of thousands of people on the subreddit and it does seem to have very positive buzz. It had like, it had a bit of a rocky start because of the technical issues. Hmm. Um, both so there were two things. There was there was technical issues um, and like server issues and things, which obviously gave me off-putting for people. And particularly, there were some issues with um, Hotas sticks that were fixed now. The other side of it is it's a very inclusive game and it has a gender diverse and, and ethnically diverse cast. 
and as such, it got really um, horribly review bombed on Metacritic. Oh, what? Yeah, because of Bellends, basically complete uh, Bellends, and so that that I think was a rocky beginning. Um, but I really like I don't know. See, I feel like in a way that I don't normally do on this podcast, I just come out and spent like twenty minutes just like firing this fucking stream of like um, like praise for this thing. But part of that's because I just see it as this weird potentially one-off and i'm almost almost already ready for our end of the year podcast where i'm like this is probably my game of the year shame it's already dead like you know what i mean i just don't want that to be the case but maybe it will be Oof. that's a that's a tragic end to this discussion <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about so so um like i don't know if there's a way of landing this on something that uh is is more pleasant than that how do you like them hangers tom they're very echoey uh, very big fan of hangers. Uh, very big fan of people standing very still talking at me in hangers, um, which is a, a big part of squadrons. Actually, can I talk? Can I talk about my fight stick? <laughs> please, yeah, no, please, please do. Uh, there's no need for a segue when you say a sentence like that. Um, I love it, and it's made me worse at games. <laughs> I think this is a, a consequence of. Uh, I think when I get a flight stick, which I will eventually do once I've bribed someone on the black market to sell me a HOTAS, uh, I, the same will happen in squadrons. But uh, it turns out like control pads are really convenient. That They've been quite well designed to let you execute moves and stuff with the, the barest minimum of like thumb and finger movement. Suddenly when you're using your entire kind of arm <laughs> and elbow and you're smacking buttons on a big, very satisfying flight stick, uh, things just seem unnatural, but more fun. So uh, m- my report from last week is that uh, I would recommend getting one of these, but expect to be worse at the games that you love as a result temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm sure that uh, like at some point I'll get to know the buttons and sort of it will become instinctive. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to report back on that based on uh, last week's podcast. I definitely interested to see what you make playing Squadrons with a flight stick. I'm pretty tempted. Although, in VR, that is a complicated thing to remember mm. where the fuck it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've entered five separate eBay bids for uh, the same flight stick, and I was like, okay, I'm willing to pay 100 quid for this. That's <laughs> that's as, like what I want to do. But at the sort of in the last sort of 20 minutes of each bid, someone was like, 200 pounds. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> It retails for seventy pounds, <laughs> just because yeah. they're not in stock. So there's a kind of uh, there's a, a shortage of uh, flight sticks. I think Thrustmaster could make an absolute killing if they got their uh, uh, they actually got some stock together. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I would buy what, two. <laughs> what kind of Thrustmaster is it you're trying to buy? So I think it's called the Hotas Four, and the reason that specific, specifically the one I want is because it works on PS4 as well as PC. Uh-huh. Uh, Whereas uh, most of the other ones are PC sticks, and you can get some very, very good uh, PC sticks, so that would be easy. But I, uh, I love my giant television and playing, uh, playing Star Wars on that. So I, I do want the stick for for the PS4 as well as the PC. And those are, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have had exactly the same idea as me. So they're not they're in short supply. I wonder if um, Flight Simulator also had a role in that. Yes, yes I hope definitely. it's all squadrons. I hope the squadrons has done so well that it's tanked the master. <laughs> Uh, secondary market but but yeah um it's just it's just nice to be in vr spaceship really nice to be in vr spaceship that that genre needs more stuff in it Mm -hmm. any like we said this a million times but any vr thing where you're in a 
made up cockpit just feels this works doesn't fucking it? good hmm. like i yeah like particularly because i use a desktop mic so i don't have to like have a microphone on my headset there's so much like i push my chair back into the middle of the room the nerdiest thing in the world <laughs> and i'm just in the next one cockpit then right like it's yeah, just you know um and i'm yelling to my friends and you know making call outs and doing cool flips and then i take the helmet off and i'm just an ordinary human man who lives in bath and then i can just put it back on and i'm back it's good and then i have dreams all night about, <laughs> <laughs> about just being in vr which is not that distinguishable from being in vr and then you wake up and you feel like you haven't slept so you play some more star wars it's a good life is what i'm saying <laughs> i'm really ready for six more months of lockdown now as well <laughs> i just need this game to survive otherwise i don't know what i'm gonna do shall we do questions from questions yes yes that is the the only terms by which i will agree to stop talking about x-wings unless this first question is about x it's not <laughs> Uh, David writes, hi all, a few episodes ago, <clears throat> Tom F. brought up the idea of limiting the length of conversations so that dialogue trees would not simply be clunky lists of topics to be exhausted. I think this is a great idea, and I've been toying around with that idea myself for a conversation engine. While I don't have any data to back it up, it seems like players have a much wider range of conversational moves available to them. NPCs typically can't introduce topics, ask questions, interrupt, or otherwise show agency. Have any games had NPC dialogue that is more than just responses to player choices? How do you feel as a player if NPCs also had agency in conversations? Take care, David. This is a really good question. And it's a, it was really a discussion about Paradise Killer uh, that the questioner is referring to. And I, uh, again, you can sort of armchair game design this stuff. But what I would say about the core question that he's asking is that, no, I don't want NPCs to have agency. <laughs> Because I'm so used to everything in games being a power trip, <laughs> I think someone interrupting me would like I would I'd be furious. <laughs> uh, but I don't know what you guys think. I think it's like it's one of those things. It's like a really interesting design problem because, like, there are a bunch of reasons why giving the player a lot of uh, control over when and how they receive dialogue like makes sense. Not just from a kind of you know. Uh, the player is powerful point of view, but just because like those are sequences that um, affect the player's ability to do other things, their ability to, you know, choose what parts of the game they're engaging with at a certain time. Um, and I, yeah, like I can understand the goal of trying to make a system like this that works. All I can think about is the kind of the vast complexity involved in making it work in a way that doesn't cause bigger problems. I think maybe that'd be the other point. Our current way of doing dialogue where it's always almost always completely player initiated and player steered <laughs> means there can be no ambiguity about when it's appropriate for an NPC to speak. Um, the NPC doesn't need to have any sense of social grace because they know they can speak because the players just pressed A to ask them about you know, whether they think it's a good idea to re to reboot the nuclear reactor or whatever the fuck it is. And so you take that away and you're in, you have to then have AI that's smart enough to know when it's a good time to speak. And most mm. people don't have that. <laughs> I certainly don't. So like, you know, that's a big task because then there's a question of like, well, if there's multiple characters in the scene, who talks and when, um, and I guess you could simplify this to like within a given conversation tree, um, should AI be able to interrupt you or, or ask their own questions? But the fact is they do. 
you know, a conversation tree is by its nature deterministic and player led. So it doesn't matter if you can create the illusion of an interruption, you can create the illusion of a question being asked the other way, but it doesn't change the mechanics of what's actually happening. For this to actually work, it would need to be a kind of an actual AI behavioral system, I think, where they are capable of coming up to you and saying, hey, what do you think about this? And that is going to inevitably lead to some pretty hardcore Bethesda type jank mm. where like a character walks up to you in the middle of a... Well, actually, that's a good example. The the Bethesda games do have a mechanic for NPC interruptions. The guards. It's the thing they, they do where they send an NPC running at you like a, an arrow across the battlefield so to, weird, steal, to steal focus from you and go, hello, do you want to join me in my shed? Like a bomb goes off behind them. And that stuff's good for like highlight real YouTube videos, but it's not, it doesn't work. I think the the closest we get to this, the most effective version of this is when NPCs just say no to you. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking particularly of uh, Dragon Age 2 and the, the romantic advances that you can attempt in that game that are just sort of shut down. And uh, right. that that to me is refreshing. That's a way of kind of doing this within the conventional conversation systems that we're used yeah. to. Yeah. Having and like writing, yeah, there's a difference between giving AI meaningful conversational agency and writing characters that don't always agree with you. Yeah, for sure. Or aren't there to be fixed by the player, which I know is a pet peeve yep. of mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting, like to take away some of the player's power in terms of the impact of what they say, but you probably need still need to have it be the player who steers the saying of it. Unless yeah. it's a game that's 100% built around a conversation system like that. Yeah, I, I do like the idea. Is, this is what Tom uh, Francis was talking about, that where he was talking about games where saying the wrong thing just ends a whole track of possible gameplay <laughs> that could right. result, um, which is obviously incredibly hard to design around because you have to build a million tracks because you still want the player to reach the end of the thing, right? So you don't want them to sabotage their entire experience for themselves by being rude to every NPC they meet. Uh, so that's a, a sort of uh, that's a dilemma I don't think can be quite resolved, even with the, the a magical AI that could talk to you organically like a human. Yeah, right. I really like um, Sounds of the Sojourner. Or Sojourner. Oh, yeah. Have either of you played that? Not played it. I've read about it though. Yeah. It's yeah, a but... it's a card game. Um and the conversations are like abstracted so that you're not making actual dialogue choices. Instead you're you're taking it in turns with the NPC you're talking to to place down cards to try and match symbols. And if you're able to match symbols with the person that you're talking to to create a link of a of like six cards in a row, you then that is termed as like some sort of a an accord or an agreement with this person and so you get a bit of dialogue which is positive and they respond well to you and maybe they give you some information that you want if you're not able to match symbols with that person you then get a different branch of dialogue essentially where they're you know pissed off at you they're less likely to help you that sort of stuff and so you feel as a player like you've got agency over the the direction of the conversation but you're not the, the possibility space isn't visible in a way that it is with a dialogue tree. So you don't have that sense of necessarily having closed off a route. <laughs> and so it feels, although it's abstracted, actually much more like real conversation. Because when I'm talking to a person, I don't have like four things in my head <laughs> and like some <laughs> sense of, oh, which one shall I say? And and you know, a visible tree of of content disappearing from that person. Are you saying you one. don't? You're saying you don't enter every conversation always knowing that one of the bottom options is leave. <laughs> like, <laughs> tell me more. 
Goodbye. I, I don't want to talk about this, or I have to go. Tell me about your people and culture. Uh, this reminds me of the, uh, the Oblivion reaction wheel. When oh, God. Which I is, love that thing. I, I love that thing, too. <laughs> it's, it's the funniest thing in games. It's amazing. Especially because the facial animations are so <laughs> so bad in that game, frankly. That, yeah. Yeah, that they sort of contort in strange ways. Is this fear, or is he aroused? I can't tell. <laughs> I think I think I mean obviously we've talked about it before, but I think the reason I love that thing so much is because now more than ever I understand that these things take time to design and and there will be documentation for that that outlines what its purpose is and and I I don't I don't think it meets it you know like I don't I it is an experience but I just can't imagine it was the experience anyone intended to make and that's what kind of makes it magical I yeah think. I'm glad it happened somehow it's like. Yeah, it's like it's not how you simulate what it's like to talk to a person. It's just not. <laughs> it's just not because I don't think about telling a joke and stare at your face and see if you smile. <laughs> like that's not you know how that works. Or I don't think about threatening you and stare at your face to see if you smile about that. Like that's you know, yeah. But would that it were? Would that it did work that way? Honestly. Um, is that all we've got to say about dialogue systems? I'm trying to think if there is a way of making this NPC interruption work, but maybe I should just interrupt myself and read out a different question. Phoenix Wright does it quite well, oh, but yeah. just you could just shout That's objection. Yeah, it's like a renegade objection. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sleep is death, but that's cheating because uh, the other the NPC is not an NPC; it's another player that is yeah, free that's... to. It's mm. a cheaty answer. Um, and by cheating answer, I mean I've run out of things to say about the question. So. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, the next question comes from, I think it's Hee or Hi Hi, who writes, uh, Dear Crayfish and Cormorant, watching the latest David Attenborough documentary made me consider the potential, sorry, consider the upcoming console releases and their potential impact on the climate, producing waste by obsoleting old technology and the inevitable cost of worldwide shipping for so many units. Do you think we'll see a change to this attitude in the future and how do you think it might change? For example, the move to digital only to reduce physical production and shipping emissions, or changing console design to allow single modules to be upgraded for, upgraded rather than the customer having to buy an entire new console revision to enable improved fidelity. Many thanks for the pods. Best wishes. Uh, hi, hi from the Discord. So I think this is a really, obviously, a very like a, a worthwhile question. Um, it's also a very difficult one to answer in isolation because, you know, I, I think... I think it's it's useful. I think to talk about ways in which the games industry specifically can can imagine a future for itself, which is greener. However, I suspect that it's more likely that the games industry will find itself um, changing to adapt to ideally different attitudes towards like much bigger subjects to do with tech and international industry and all the rest of it and manufacturing that affect games, but almost certainly aren't led by games in terms of what needs to happen and when. And that's if those things happen, which is a more pessimistic thought does that make sense like it might i just i sort of doubt that it would be the games industry deciding hey we're not going to ship things quite the way we used to or we're not going to uh think of technology the way we used to it's more likely that society as a whole needs to rethink some of that stuff and then pass those learnings into every form of manufacturing and every form of consumer technology yeah so at the heart of this is um the idea of digital distribution being environmentally healthy i think that's that's not an assumption we should make based on the amount of uh, energy and server space that it takes to actually like give the people those products. And yeah, if, if there's anything we've learned from e-currency, actually a lot of the 
<laughs> power out, output that's uh, buzzing around on the internet comes from that and the, the gaming could become that so just because you're not shipping physical things doesn't mean you're not burning energy and you, you need to ask where that energy is coming from how it's supplied and whether it's green or not uh, and i think like it's actually uh, it's a, this is a great question because this is actually a, an underexplored aspect of the gaming industry for sure yeah i think it's an important subject it's just a, like i mean you, we could talk about how yeah because even as you say like if we moved if we moved to every game being you know, run on a cloud stadia style, then even then the power costs are astronomical, um, environmentally and otherwise. Yeah, if the computer's not in your house, that computer is still effectively somewhere in the world. Like the parts still need to be made for the server that that's running on and the power consumption still exists and is probably amplified. And Tom, you you mentioned earlier, like if, if you did move to a system where consoles were upgradable, say you've mm. still just got the the product distribution problem of things being posted around the world shipped about yeah i feel like uh, often uh, quote unquote the cloud is often bandied about as a solution to this but i would challenge that enormously <laughs> i think uh, whatever the cloud means for each company is very different and they they can be incredibly power intensive and where it depends where they're based in the world and also you have to have server centers near like so um, geography matters for servers uh, if you want really responsive uh, activity you need to be nearer to a server than uh, so if all this, what i'm saying is all the servers can't be in america so what, what do you do yeah. then and how do you actually build those server centers and, and what is the environmental impact of that as well uh, so there's a there's a whole chain of supply that needs to be examined for this matter that i have too little knowledge on to comment on to be honest but uh it's it, that's it's a great question yeah it's just a, a big question is the thing i think mm. um so from that to a question about hugging <laughs> simon writes hi cnc i was recently playing assassin's creed odyssey and i walked past someone who was crying i went over to try and console them but instead they ran away in fear evidently presuming that the armored mystios with the big sword was probably going to attack them it made me wonder Given that there are so many video games where you can hurt people, are there any way you can comfort people? Given so many names how now have a button that will let you pet the dog, 2020 has given me a crazy urge to hug the NPCs I walk past. Keep up the good work and hugs for all that want them, Simon. <laughs> I'd love a button uh, to pet the human <laughs> in every game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone asks pet dog, no one asks pet man. Why not pet man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think... Um, in terms of games where you actually comfort people, Kind Words is the best example of this I can think of. I mean, that's a game about literally offering kind words to other humans, real humans. Um, but given that the vast majority of internet exchanges of language in a kind of anonymous sense are not that, that is a nice counterpoint. Um, trying to think of game, you know, and um, I guess I haven't played it, but I guess, Graham, you mentioned Spiritfarer fits this bill. Yeah, it's a game entirely about tending to um, a, a boat filled with anthropomorphic animals and comforting them essentially as you take them towards their final resting place uh, and like tending to them means hugging them there's just a button in the ui you can walk up to any of the characters and give them a hug at any point and the animation for it is lovely uh it also means like building and decorating them a nice house and cooking them their favorite meal and oh. like gathering items 
that represent fond memories from their past and all this sort of stuff. It is, it is 100% a game about tending to people and caring for them and comforting them. And it's really lovely. I can't, I literally can't think of any other game that does that, um, which is perhaps an indictment of uh, the medium. Yeah. Well. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Like, I mean, cause there are plenty of games where you can like, I mean, yeah, just being nice, just offering a, a nice hug. If someone feels down, maybe fable has some of this, but that's like, you can do a fart and make them feel better or something. Like, I'm not sure if it's quite <laughs> the same thing. I mean, the Sims, the Sims has that's better true. interpersonal yeah. relationship stuff when you can, you can comfort NPCs or you can, they, they comfort each other without your interaction as well. It's kind of a, a yeah, big that's thing. Mm. That's um, true. It's not quite, yeah. Football manager, you can, if a player does particularly poorly <laughs> on the pitch, you could choose to either scold them or to, you know, tell them <laughs> that, yeah. Basically, to, to, to tell them to buck up and, you know, tell them, say to the press, in fact, that you mm. support them and that they're a great player and you're, you're sure they'll bounce back. Aww. Sometimes they, they really appreciate that and sometimes they, the rest of the team gets cross at you for not condemning the one that was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you just destroy your team's morale because it seems like you can't tell the difference between a good player and a bad one. That's hilarious. Aww. That is very funny. Pet the millionaire. Yeah. They're not all millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> Our last question for the evening comes from uh, Valike, who writes, Dear CNC, greetings CNC crew. Traditionally in video games, losing isn't fun. The only times I actually enjoy losing rather than just tolerating it are multiplayer games where after a closely matched yet friendly contest, my opponent outpredicts me to tip the balance in their favour. But is it possible to experience this when your opponent is a computer? Is it possible to make losing fun? Yours defeatedly, uh, the like. Hmm. hmm. I think it's kind of interesting because losing to me suggests kind of like competitive loss rather than just failing or dying, right? Because like it feels like we've talked about what makes failing interesting a bunch over the years. And there's plenty of examples of games that we all like where failing is an integral part of it. Dare I say it? That was both the low-hanging low flute and the other low-hanging flute of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Spunky and Dark Souls. Tooting both of them at the same time. Um, and, you know, like, because, yeah, like, those are games where failure is integral. And I would say partly integral to the appeal, because, you know, if you don't like failing, you're not going to like those games <laughs> um, to some extent. But is that what this is talking about? Like, uh, is are there examples of games where losing to like losing in a competitive setting, losing to the AI is is the thing you you, I, you can derive pleasure from? I find this in um, uh, competitive card games uh, and that kind of thing, where I get to look back and analyze why I lost, and perhaps mm. learn from it, and actually get better at the game. So, where in in that context, losing is a form of progress where I've lost because I, I was inefficient with my mana or whatever or didn't play this right card at the right time. Um, and it's also just, that's just an interesting intellectual challenge to analyze your own behavior and your own play uh, in order to better yourself. So that's potentially a good one. Having said that, um, uh, fuck Hearthstone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, sometimes there's just RNG. Sometimes there's just luck involved in what gets drawn when. And uh, yeah, that frustrates me endlessly in these games. I tend to be okay with with losing and dying in any 
almost any game where it's systemic rather than a narrative. Like if if I'm playing something like Mafia, for example, which I talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I talked about losing the race in that, and the consequence of that is I just have to now do that race again because that's not how the story goes. Mm. Um, And I think we talked about Prince of Persia recently where Sands of Time has the narrator who says, oh, wait, that's not mm. what happened when you fell on some spikes. That's that's just what every linear narrative action game feels to me when I die and then have to repeat a bit of it. But if I'm playing something like Crusader Kings, for example, which is a very, like, it's a narrative-heavy game, but it's systemically fueled. So if, if my character dies in that, that just feels like an end to a story which I had enormous agency over and like the end of an actual story, like a book or a TV show. I'm not like cross about it or anything like that. It just feels hmm. like the end of the story. Even if I don't have an air to like assume control of the child. And um, the other time I like it is in like strategy games where you can see, Oh, I got outsmarted there. Like there was a clear strategy where you can see the workings of the AI you were playing against, which is sort of the the opposite of the Hearthstone RNG thing you were mentioning, Tom. Where mm. you feel like, oh, this is this was totally fair. Uh, the example I always think of is Unity of Command. There's a sequel which is which I haven't played, but the first one, um, the enemies are really good at applying battlefield tactics in order to lure you into traps essentially like they will leave defenses in their front lines so that you will poke your your way through those defenses and then they will cut off your supply lines behind you closing the door that you just came through and that sort of stuff and when you see them actually doing that um there is such a like there's a great sense of oh the ai i'm playing against feels like intelligent person at that point uh which is like i appreciate loss at that point mm. there's a, a great term which is called uh what's it fading forwards and uh this is a great thing in pen and paper games but it's also a thing that can happen in rpgs where you mess up a quest but actually opens up new options and new character developments games aren't particularly good at that video games aren't uh, but on the rare occasions where it, where it happens it's immensely satisfying so that's another good sort of lost state yeah that's well, that's interesting because that's we talked about that before in the sense of like what makes you accept a lost state. Because like save scumming is the anti that, right? Like yeah. save scumming is saying I didn't like that I lost even a small amount, so I'm going to rewind time and redo it. Um, and that's an interesting kind of quandary. But I think it, what it comes down to is like if the the lost state is interesting, then you then it's interesting to persevere necessarily. Um, and that is true of. Like I think maybe what's interesting or engaging about like dare I say it, a spelunky death or something like that is that you can look back at it and go like well the the circumstances by which that came about are interestingly unlikely you know or <laughs> or involve systems talking to each other in in ways that resulted in a bad thing happening to me but have taught me something about what this possibility space actually is and that's satisfying in its own right even if you can't you know keep playing from that point and I think the same is true. Of, successful kind of fail forward moments which are about realizing actually well we didn't get what we wanted but this possibility space is bigger than we thought it was so maybe we do want to go in this direction now but i agree with you that games aren't necessarily great at uh doing that at all no like the the opposite of that is uh the forced fail 
and I hate this in games where you're yeah. put, you're thrown into a, a a combat situation or something that you that is, you're, you have to lose in order to progress, and that just feels really unfair. Uh, well, I guess I guess what it comes down to is like you either have to you have to respect the thing that caused your demise. And if it's a big system that you don't fully understand, that can command some respect. If it's an AI that has been cleverly designed to outplay you based on terms you uh, you agreed to, that can command your respect. A game designer telling you that you've lost, nobody respects that. <laughs> Boo. Boo to them. You know? Hiss. Piss off, game designers, is what you would say. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not desirable because why would you ever respect somebody who would put a forced fail sequence like that in a game? Obviously. Quite right. Yeah. Uh, on that note, that is all the questions we've got time for. Uh, if you would like to uh, send us a question for future episodes of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. We have a Patreon. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters, whom are nice, good. Uh, you can find out more about becoming a nice, good Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. We have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. That's that. Uh, there's a Discord. Discord's good, isn't it? I like yes, Discord. It's the, yeah, good, good job. <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, you can find a link to that on our website, createcrobo.com. It's a link right up there in the title bar. You click it, big magical button pops up. You click that, you're in the Discord now. Congratulations to you. Um, that's that, I think. I've been Chris Thurston. I've been Graham Smith. I've been Tom Senior and... Uh, Look out for the Film and TV Monday or Soon podcast, uh, <laughs> in which we will talk about uh, Marriage Story, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Below Deck, and uh, a bunch of vintage, brilliant British television series. Uh, it was a really good chat. I'm looking forward to getting it properly edited and out. So you look for that in your feed. Monday or Soon. Monday or Soon. Lovely. And so listen, Thanks everybody. Listen, everybody. <laughs> hey. Look, Graham's got agency. <laughs> oh, no.